Welcome to Nerd Cannon. I'm Beth. I'm Paul. This is a podcast where two librarians look at pop culture cornerstones from their childhood and decide if they're good enough to be shared with the next generation of nerds. But today, that is not what we are doing. Today we have a super special, famous, exciting guest, and today we are talking to Corey Doctorow. Hi, Corey! Hi, how are you? I'm a recovering library worker. Oh, how's the recovery going? Uh, so far, so good. It's been a long time since I had the urge to catalog anything. Yeah, yeah I, no, re- I don't think anyone has that. I urge. rarely have that urge. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great summer job. I cataloged a whole middle school library one year. Wow, all on my own. Right. Just the, it was me and the you know the caretakers doing the deep clean, the summer deep clean. Uh, oh, wow! All through summer break, just taking a cart of books over and light penning the uh, the barcodes or punching the LOC numbers yeah, when they yeah, didn't yeah. have those bins. <laughs> Seeing Whoa. all the wieners that generations of middle schoolers had drawn in the margins. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah that's still still a thing. That's yep. still a yeah. thing. They're everywhere. I, I they're think in I've... Pompeii. I mean, yes! drawing wieners. That's a story know. I tell in my graphic novels class that wieners are <laughs> <Yeah>. in Pompeii. <laughs> Um, I joke that I, this is an inappropriate joke, but that I see more wieners at work than I do in my life because they're on everything. (laughs) And that's why I'm getting fired today. Anyway, um, uh, so I have a, I have a little like dorky intro about, about Corey for those of, um, those of our listeners who might not know, you should know. Corey is a science fiction author, activist, and journalist. He is a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, co-edits the blog Boing Boing. He's the author of many books, science fiction books, for adults, nonfiction books, um, a graphic novel, a picture book, Posey and the Monster Slayer. And his latest book is Attack Surface, which is a standalone adult sequel to Little Brother and Homeland. Corey, want to tell us about Attack Surface? Sure. Although, let me make one tiny correction. Which yeah, is that yeah, yeah. While I co-owned Boing Boing and wrote it every day for 19 years exactly, I quit on the 19th anniversary of it in January. Oh. I remain a co-owner, but I don't write it anymore. Well, I have my I'm own fired. little solo project called Pluralistic.net. Pluralistic. It was a good one. Oh, yeah. cool. So, uh, Attack Surface. Um, so, uh, as, as with every book talk, I'm holding up you the book. You have to hold it. It's very important. Audio. Yeah. Uh, Attack Surface is the third Little Brother book. Uh, Little Brother and Homeland were the first two. They're young adult novels that came out in the first and second decade of this century. And uh, they were both bestsellers, and they're both books about um, young people challenging authority using technology. Um, and young people having authority imposed on them with technology. And the, the first book talks about a terrorist attack on San Francisco and how teenagers rise up uh, as the DHS converts their city to a, a kind of militarized police state. They hack Xboxes. They build a network of uh, cryptographic uh, secured wireless protocols. Um, they outmaneuver the DHS, eventually toss them out of San Francisco and restore the Bill of Rights to their neighbors. Uh, the second book is all about these giant uh, tranches of leaks and uh, hotly contested elections. And then this is the third book. And the third book is a standalone book for adults. Uh, and it is set f- uh, told from the point of view of a different character. It's told from the point of view of the nemesis and sometimes ally of the kids in the first two books, this woman, Masha Maximo, who, after the terrorist attack in San Francisco, that is the first book, she is so traumatized by it and so atavistically enraged that she becomes a DHS uh, surveillance contractor tracking down the heroes of the first book uh, as part of the response to the terrorist attack. In the second book, she's a Beltway bandit uh, working in a forward operations base in Iraq, uh, spying on jihadis and insurgents. And when we meet her again in this third book, 
She is a full-on cyber mercenary. She gets a really good paycheck for helping the worst post-Soviet dictators in the world crush pro-democracy movements using technology. And she has this reckoning. Uh, all of her life, she has been compartmentalizing, rationalizing what she does, convincing herself that she's a good person or a moral person or at least not a hypocrite for what she's doing. And one of the ways she does that is by helping out the people she's spying on as a way of paying back the karma. This is not a sustainable thing to do if you work for horrific dictators. And eventually she ends up leaving this country in the former Soviet Union, coming back to America. And she discovers to her horror that her childhood best friend is now uh, an organizer and a successor to Black Lives Matter and is being targeted by the same cyber weapons that she herself has spent her career building. And she has this belated and really intense moral reckoning amid all of the kind of techno-thriller shenanigans that people like about the books, that they attend to computers as they are, not as, as uh, you know, novelists and lawmakers are want to, which is as metaphors that they can project their desires and fears on, but real things that computers can and can't do are the things that uh, cabin the possibilities of the plot. And I really dig into them to find the exciting kind of techno-thriller meat on that bone. Um, but it's, you know, primarily a story about people who have talked themselves into doing the wrong thing, talked themselves into earning their paycheck by doing something they know is wrong, and having the moral reckoning that all of us eventually have to have, and and figuring out what they're going to do about who they've become. And, and in that sense, it's an adult book. The first two books are YA books. This mm -hmm. is an adult book. It's an adult book that doesn't have any sex scenes. The young adult uh, books have sex I'm out. scenes. Never mind. No. Yeah, I mean, but young adults, you know, <laughs> speaking as a nearly 50-year-old man, <laughs> young adults both think about and have more sex than than many adults. So, you know, the thing that makes this an adult book Accurate. Is yeah, but it's, it's got it's got moral reckonings in it. And one thing that most teenagers don't need to have, and even if they do, probably won't have, is a moral reckoning. So right. it's it's got a it's it's a book about looking back on your life and deciding what it means to recommit yourself to your ideals, which is something that I feel is very timely. Well, and also I think if people read Little Brother as younger people when it came out, you know, now they've grown up a little bit with it. That's and very true. and yeah. yeah, and um I I liked so much that it was about Masha because, you know, she does have a lot of depth even in the earlier you know, I just thought it was neat to hear that side of the story. So Yeah, so, yeah. yeah it's surveillance Rashomon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was nervous when I when I read the little blurb about attack surface because it was I could tell it was about Masha then and I was like I don't really like her <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't but it it was really the way you characterize it as her moral reckoning it was that's perfect uh, just I was anticipating being a little turned off by the first person of being Masha because of the way she was in the first couple books and then. To, to bring it out like that was it was great yeah well one of the things that she points out is that the reason that the heroes of the first two books don't need moral reckonings is because they kid themselves about right. the yeah. moral uh failings and what they do or the they, they kind of paper them over and and you know right. one of her points of pride is that she she always knows when she's compromising and she does it with her eyes open she says you know mm -hmm. better to be an honest hypocrite and i think there are a lot of people who get there i think you know the kind of the the uh, can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely, yes, it's our can. favorite I, thing. I, I think at the core of of you know fuck your feelings politics, yeah, is the idea better to be an honest bastard than a than a, a mealy mouthed hypocrite who has the pretense of of caring, but when the chips are down, doesn't you know? Yeah, for as sure. we record this the day after 
the U.S. Woof! Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, I was told as a Canadian <laughs> that when you had elections here, that the way it worked is Tuesday night the election finishes, Wednesday morning the new president moves into the White House, Sunday everything is fixed, <laughs> and I feel cheated. Yes. Not what's happening. No. Yeah. Nope, nope, nope. Yeah, we are, um, we are drinking, uh, still. So, <laughs> hopefully. I, uh, it's a little early on the West Coast. But oh, have, uh, fair, I'm, fair. I'm, the barbecue is running. I have, uh, uh, chicken and tofu marinating in jerk sauce. And, oh, that uh, then we're going to drink whiskey and eat jerk, whis- uh, jerk tofu and sit in the hot tub, which is about as California as it gets. That yeah. sounds like a real delight though. Yeah. That sounds pretty great. So, Corey, I normally do – we normally talk about um, dorky retro stuff, and I do a bunch of fun facts. I have a couple of fun facts about you, but I've never had to do them when someone who could correct me was here. So let's see if I uh, if I fuck them up again. It's all um, lies! Yeah, usually, like, that's – you know, I'm talking about a movie from 1982 that nobody would I just saw. accept that she's telling me the truth all the time. Oh, so. yeah, I'm full of shit generally, but <laughs> – um, so, uh, so fun facts about Corey, uh, hails from Ontario, Canada. Yeah. Okay. Well, good, good, true. good. Not fired yet. Um, you have an honorary doctorate in computer science from Open University. I, I do. Yep. That's it, very fancy. I never finished my undergraduate, but I did get a, a doctorate. My, good my parents you. are doctor and doctor, doctor, and they did it the hard way. That and is And when I got mine, ridiculous. I was like, guys, why, yeah. why did you do all that? I mean, God, you know, <laughs> seems so, so much inefficient. Effort. Yeah, yeah, so much effort. The webcomic XKCD occasionally features a partially fictionalized version of Dr. O who lives in a hot air balloon up in the blogosphere above the tag clouds and wears a red cape and goggles. I would say that it's entirely fictionalized, <laughs> but yes. I, I've yeah. seen you in the costume, though. Yeah, I, know. I have true. also <laughs> seen you in the costume. I accepted Randy's Hugo Award for him, Randall Monroe's Hugo yeah. Award for him in <laughs> London and a cape and goggles. Yes. That's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, and I'm pretty sure you can eat jerk tofu and hot air balloons, so I'm just saying. Very true. Yeah, the novel Ready Player One features a mention of Dr. O as being the newly reelected president of the Oasis, uh, with Will Wheaton as vice president in the year 2044. Yep, Will lives around the corner for me and has recorded many of my audiobooks as well as Ernie's audiobooks. He's just finished recording the second one. I have a question about him later, but... Um, and then my okay. last fun fact is the comedic role-playing game of Kingdom of Loathing features a boss fight against a monster named Dr. O, who is described as wearing a red cape and goggles. Yeah. So. Yeah. Nice. I, I haven't had a KOL uh, reference in a long time. That's a deep cut. <laughs> I like to do a deep cut from time to time. I used to have their uh, iClub Baby Seals uh, bumper sticker on my suitcase. Perfect. <laughs> nice. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, Paul said he played it for a long time. I did, yeah. yeah. So one of the memes that I posted recently on our uh, social media was, because um, I told you this is basically a Tim Curry fan cast, um, you can tell a lot about a person by where they know Tim Curry from. So, like, can you share with us some of your favorite Tim Curry moments, if you have any. Well, okay, so I did go to Rocky Horror every Friday and Saturday Hell for yes! four years. Yes. Uh, yes! And sometimes play Eddie. Uh, but oh, I yeah! Think I probably saw Clue first, because I think it came out before I was old enough. Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember the years, but that you know, was our, It was 85. So. Yes. Oh, maybe the same. No. So I might have seen Rocky first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I, was I our first been. episode of the podcast, Clue. Right. Yeah, I was just thinking it. about – in fact, I just um, found a GIF set of it that Will Wheaton posted on Tumblr yeah. <laughs> and texted my wife and said we should show the kid Clue. Oh, she's starting so to get into horror movies. So it's she's so 12. good. It's a good 
It's a good uh, fit for her. So we'll yeah. guess that that would go into your canon. That's what um, that's yeah. our premise is what sure. we, what we're going to force our children to watch. <laughs> Although yeah. our children are still too little, but they'll get there. Um, you know, when our when my daughter was born, uh, her godfather is a writer named Bruce Sterling, who's this very kind of groovy fellow. Who's one of the kind of intellectual godfathers of cyberpunk, bad boy of science fiction. And he said, "I have some advice for you. No matter." How, like, bohemia and a new tray you are, by the time your daughter is 15, you will epitomize contentable bourgeois normalcy for her. <laughs> and I'm – she's, like, my kid's only 12, and we're already there. So, it's you know, real sad. En- enjoy exposing them to the literature and music and, and films you love now because yep. – when the time comes, it's not, it, you know, yeah. the fact that you like it will be not one strike against it, but like all three the strikes. strikes yes, it. every yeah. strike. I'm going to have to sell them on the black market if they don't like some of the things, but yeah, it's <laughs> tough. I told him I was going to be uh, David Bowie for Halloween, and there was much discussion of the, the forms of David Bowie. So I have a giant comic book, and so they were loving. They're two and four, so, you know, deep, okay, very deep good. thoughts. Um, yeah. David so, Bowie just kind of looks like a, a monster. There's Muppets David Bowie, right? Dark yeah. Right. David Bowie. Yeah. Right. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Labyrinth, you remind me of the babe. So we, we, that's Labyrinth, what we go that's with. It. Yep, that's what we go with. Right. So yeah, our podcast largely centers around nostalgia and media from youth. And so, um, what are some of your favorite nostalgic things? Like what would you, what are some of your top nerd canon things that you've forced upon your, your child? Well, so the big one is Disney theme parks and mm. specifically the Haunted Mansion. I was yeah. bitten by a radioactive oh. Haunted Mansion when I was six years old. I, I worked <laughs> for Imagineering. I did work on mansion wow. stuff for Imagineering. Uh, my wife works for the mouse now. She works for the studios, not the not, okay. not engineering. But but you know, like we are my our first real proper date. My wife and I was like a, a dirty dirty weekend in Disneyland. She flew over from London. I was living <laughs> wow. in San Francisco. So you know, and and so my kid has been a bajillion times even before you know either of us were working uh, enough for the mouse that we got free passes. We would go to Paris for Disneyland when we lived in London, or we'd come visit. Uh, friends in LA and go to the one here or, or hang out with my snowbird family in Florida yeah. and go to the oh, one that's there. So fun. she's been, so that's kind of, that's, that's like way up there. Other nostalgia stuff. So country swing, uh, which is like the nostalgia of my grandparents, but you know, Bob Wales and the Texas Playboys, that stuff and generally novelty music of that era. So, um, Alan Sherman and uh, Mickey Katz, who was okay. this like, you know, he, he was, um, like a Borscht Belt guy, but he, he got these klezmer musicians, his session musicians, who were like these super hot jazz musicians. It's like he brought the Wrecking Crew in that's to crazy. do parodies of how much is that doggy in the window that's how much is that pickle <laughs> in the window. Like it's, it is, it is spectacularly well executed music that's funny and dumb. So uh, that's, 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 that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, so, it's so a hell of a lot of stuff. So how, how successful have you been? Yeah. In, now you're 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 not no. at all. You're way. <laughs> no. I, I I got the kid to sing sad cowboy songs at bedtime for a long time, and then she figured out that they were all about like dying alone in the desert. And she's <laughs> like, "Daddy, they're sad." So we don't sing those anymore. What do we? What what do we still share? The kid and me. So she has become a Neil Gaiman fan. Yeah. Which is yeah okay. Neil's daughter used to babysit her when we lived in London. Oh, and wow. So, yeah. You know, she's, it's like the one thing about me that's cool. Sure. Uh, <laughs> that's it. That's all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what else? Um, a little bit of Roald Dahl. Well, and you know, we named her after Edgar Allan Poe and I'm a huge Poe fan and she secretly quite likes Poe. 
But uh, she couldn't tell you that because that's embarrassing yeah, for everybody. But they just did Telltale Heart in English, and she was so excited, you know. Oh, and, that's and, fun. Yeah. Yeah. What else is, is my nostalgia media? Um, we do, we do eighties and, uh, eighties and early nineties stuff. So we, eighties and early nineties. Yeah. We talk about like, we do like music videos and, um, mm-hmm. man, we just watched a real ridiculous, we watched Ace of Base a couple weeks ago and we were like, I, what's happening? Ulf was at the event that I met my wife at. Stop it! <laughs> yeah. I before he was outed as a white nationalist. Oh no! No! Oh, Didn't I say that at we met at a, a conference in Finland that Nokia put on oh, at, at Midsummers, and uh, they invited all these people who had these different came from these different. I was yeah, you know a digital yeah. rights activist. My wife worked for the BBC, and then Ulf was Ulf from Mesa Base, and uh, <laughs> they brought us all in to talk about uh, what was then called social software is now yeah. called social media. Holy uh, shit, that's hilarious. It was very funny. It was that's a very weird. not the one, Paul, that I – that's the other guy, not the one that's I the made the guy. meme. The, I made right. a meme out of the one because he looks like Larry Bigby from um, Buffy, and it was like this whole thing. This uh. is not important, but um, – yeah. We okay, got, I've got a we, Buffy connection for you, though. So oh. the audiobook of Attack Surface yes, is Amber read by Amber Benson. Yes. So here's the thing that I need to tell you is that my daughter's name is Willow. <laughs> <laughs> I ah. mean, possibly after a lesbian witch, I'm just saying. So, like, right. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God. Um, yeah, which, she's great. She's also read on a bunch of my audiobooks. And yeah, she's yeah, such yeah. a good actor. You she's know. incredible. Um, I'm actually rewatching. I'm rewatching Buffy and listening to Buffering the Vampire Slayer podcast, and it's incredible. And mm. um, they write a song about every episode. So that's, I, I don't know, it's my favorite ah. thing to plug. Every That's other dope. podcast. It's so good. Um, but that brings me to, um, Will Wheaton and the audiobook for Homeland. Um, also yeah. he, the funny part is in Ready Player One that he reads and then he mentions this, how you guys are president and vice yeah. president, which yeah. I thought was funny. But so here's a quote that he said about you that I liked, which was, Corey teaches the reader about a cool thing that they can easily do and give them enough information to let them know what it is, but not enough information that they can do it without some research because he wants to encourage people to get online. And I thought that was, like, a really cool way of piquing interest in hacktivism and computer knowledge. And my question is, like, how intentional is that? And Because I thought that when I was reading it myself. And then, you know, I just, I don't know, I thought that was so cool. It's definitely, like, my pedagogical and literary method, right? Like, I love... I, I had a I had a complete revelation last year. I was uh, teaching a writing program, and I had a student who was very good, and we had our little one-on-one session, and she said, you know, uh, I've learned all these rules about writing, like show, don't tell, and, you know, don't use attributive verbs, just use said, yeah. and so on. Um, and yet, all these books I love break those rules, including some of yours. <laughs> what what do I do to break the rule? Like, when do I break the rules? And there's a pat answer for this, which is like the jazz answer. Like, you've got to know the you rules. You have to, to know the rules. rules enough to break yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't think is right. I think what it is, is what we what we call a rule is actually something that's hard to do well. And so if you read a book and it's not working, like if you're working on a book and it's not working, you're editing a book or you're critiquing a book and it's not working – Look for the stuff that's hard to do and see if that's where you screwed up because that's the stuff that's hardest to get right. And so start by removing the stuff that's hard to do right and replacing it with something less varsity and see if you don't end up with a better executed book. And so that's what we mean by rule. We mean hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, 
I love discursion. That was all by way of a discursion to say I love discursion. I love <laughs> uh, explanations. Yeah. I love that kind of spittle fleck, like, here's this thing I'm really excited about. Let me explain it to you thing. And when I was a kid, the books that I doted on were the secret knowledge books, like the Anarchist Cookbook and uh, Steal This Book yeah. and, you know, the Amok Catalog and all of these other books. And they were full of secret knowledge because secret knowledge was hard to come by in the 70s and 80s. Sure. Like, we we had and it was currency right like so we had a thing that went around my friend group the old bell payphones before they went to a sealed handset you could unscrew the earpiece and then you could short the two contacts oh, on the back I've of the earpiece heard this. The yeah and you get a dial tone you can make free calls and I've so like that. everyone knew this right like this was the thing you met someone and you would like synchronize your secret knowledge right like oh yeah. do you know the thing Did about you the know phones you could do yeah yeah and it was super cool but in the internet age all of this secret knowledge is available, and what we don't have is search terms. So the point of the books is to equip you with the context about why you might want to search for something and uh -huh. the terms to search for. And then you can go off – like, so Figure this is discursion – yeah, and it's discursion like – on a budget because you don't have to explain how it works. You just have to explain why it's cool that it works and yeah. tell people enough that they can figure out how it works themselves. In the in the mid nineties when I was getting online for sort of the first time at my house, I I downloaded the very very print um, heavy anarchist cookbook and I thought I was the peak of of hacker elite <laughs> at the time. That was my, you know I found yeah. the anarchist cookbook online and I yep. downloaded that yeah. text file and it was. But so I have book talked to little brother over the years many Aww. many times and the kids who it sticks with the kids who come back and want more of that are the kids who are like they're the kids who are really interested and are pulled into that world of this tech stuff that they want to figure out and go find more and learn more about. Those are the kids yeah. who come back to me like, I give me another one of these. I need the next one. I need more of this. That that just really hooks that certain type of kid yeah. that, I, that I book talk little brother with that they're they're pulled well, in I'm by that. And that's why I think that, you know, dealing with computers as they are instead of as metaphors is like such a powerful thing. But I was gonna ask if you remember last year I think it was like almost exactly a year ago, Joe Men published his book, Cult of the Dead Cow, which was a history of the legendary hacker group. And one of the things he revealed is that Beto O'Rourke was in the Cult of the Dead Cow. Hmm. And, I remember uh, that, yeah. And, and uh, under, I forget what his name was, like Eternals Supermancer or something. Yeah, it was but something his, really ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was an 18-year-old yeah. writing right. bad poetry, right? <laughs> right, it was right, right. But, but one of the things that CDC did was they made and circulated and curated these huge troves of text files of things like the Anarchist Cookbook and other forbidden knowledge. And, you know, that was like, um, you know, like that tradition of like, you know, the, the cool cousin who puts their armor on your shoulder and says like, this is how you smoke a joint. And this is where, you know, this, this is how you like, uh, mask caller ID. And here's how you sneak out of the house without your parents catching right. you. And here's how you get the vodka off your breath. Yeah. And you know, like all of that stuff is so tantalizing to kids, right? And it's like, it's such a, it's so delicious, even if you never use it, right? Having this right. encyclopedic yeah. knowledge of like, oh, you know, if you, I remember, um, a friend of mine growing up in Toronto's parents were Kentucky draft dodgers. And mm. by this time there had been an amnesty. So they would go back and forth every year. And he went back and, and came home after the end of summer break, knowing how to make moonshine. <laughs> and, and, 
I, you know, I, I don't think he ever made it. Like he just, he, right. like he had a cousin who knew a moonshiner who explained it. And it's just, you know, it's basically like corn and sugar and you to do some stuff. Right. But, but, uh, it was, it was so exciting. Right. To find I out how to make, make there moonshine. be alcohol. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, Very it was important. like the stories we'd heard about smoking banana peels. That, except it was real, right? You could right. I'm so on board for this. Into shine. This is this <laughs> right. is why I was shopping for a still. You know, when in. <laughs> In April, when we, I was at home with very little deal, like, I should buy a still. You should, and then you should bring that over here. Do you want to hear what a hipster I have become during the lockdown? I yeah. am making my own ginger habanero kombucha. Um, that sounds pretty fucking great, actually. It's pretty good, and now I'm making it with um, – with uh, champagne yeast, so it's coming out seven to eight percent. Oh, and it is it is fiery, cold, delicious, spicy, fizzy, boozy. That sounds real. Knock good. you on your ass, good. Yeah. All right. Speaking of drinks, I have a question for you. Yeah. About the the coffee, the oh, coffee yeah, yeah. in Little Brother series. Is this a, a personal thing? Was this a choice just for Marcus or the, the characters in? Little brother, or or uh, where does that come from? I am not a coffee person. This is right. maybe the first time I had really heard He's a not a real discussion. Person. Oh, shut up! Of uh. of cold brewed coffee, and now I feel like I need to brew my own cold brew coffee because it sounds amazing. But where yeah. is the coffee coming from? Is that you? I I'm a giant coffee nut for sure, and I was I came to it late. I came to it in my 30s, so a lot later than I think most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and um. So there's time for you, Paul. There is. Yeah. <laughs> and I got into it. And then, like, one of the things about coffee is it's kind of a, not a U-shaped curve, like an inverted U-shaped curve, where at first you're like, here's some easy ways to make coffee. And then you, you climb this gradient towards, like, here are some ferociously, ridiculously complicated ways to make coffee. And then you dial in what you like and you go back to, oh, here's a nice, easy way to make coffee. So I just use this little gadget called the AeroPress. That's like a $25 plastic um, piston that was invented by the guy who invented the Araby Frisbee. Uh, he's had two things. They're both called Arrow, Arrow Press and Arrow B. It's a real bunch uh, of name pony. Yeah. And it makes, I in London, I, I bought a hand-built, beautiful brass espresso machine. Uh, I did workshops with a world champion barista who owned a coffee shop down the street. I got really good at making really good espresso. That espresso on the best day of my life was worse than the $25 <laughs> plastic piston that I use half asleep every morning. I no longer own a thermometer. I don't have to, you know, like, I don't have to right. uh, use special water. It's just, like, good beans and, and and the one thing that we had that's special coffee equipment, and it's actually just special hot drinks equipment because my wife is British and drinks enough killed tea to kill a rhino, <laughs> is one of those um, Japanese always-on water boilers mm. that you just press the button on the top and hot water comes out. So that's that. That's at coffee temperature. I grind the beans. I add it. I stir it. I press it. I drink it. I'm happy. And when I can't, I'm sad. And back when there was a world that was outside of the house, I had a little traveling coffee kit. So I have a travel aeropress. I have a little collapsible silicone kettle. Uh, you know, I used to travel with a hand grinder uh, and whole beans. And then I realized that my wrist tendons only had so many duty cycles left. And when I exhausted them, that I would and no you need longer them be for a other writer. Things, yeah, yeah, exactly. What are you saying? Nothing. <laughs> 
so you know now I now I pre grind before I hit the road, and then on long trips I go into coffee shops and get a pound of of my beans and get them ground and. Uh, um, have some Ziploc bags right. in my suitcase. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be nice if we could travel again someday and then you can... <laughs> I'm, I'm told that that might happen someday, but I don't be believe lovely. it. Yeah. <laughs> no, we need no, to I'll stop call. having these um, rat-licking parties first. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <Important. laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is what we were talking about before you got on. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's um, there's some talk of LARPing in Little Brother. Are uh-huh. are, are we a former LARPer or D and D or what? RPG, what are we? yeah, D and D for sure, hardcore. Uh, I went to a Groovy Alternative School, and there was a big D and D scene in it. Yeah. And uh, that's one a of the... sentence I've never heard anyone say in my life. <laughs> but more well, people, the... more people should say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And one of the one of the pedagogical elements of the school was that they would have a PD day every second Wednesday afternoon, and they would kick all the kids above fourth grade out of the school, and they'd say like, "You've got subway passes, go find something to do." Yeah, do something cool. And so, and so we would go downtown, and we'd go to the D and D stores, and then we'd go over to my friend Sean's house, and we'd play D and D and drop things off his eleventh story balcony, uh, <laughs> which was not good. I'm not proud of it, but I'm owning it. Better to be an honest, hip- uh, honest sinner than a hypocrite. Uh, but I played so much D and D, and and Toronto was a great D and D city. Um, it was a great nerd town. So Toronto, uh, when it still I was, is. it still is totally no. But when I was nine, we went on a school trip to the Spaced Out Library, which was the library that Judith Merrill founded. Uh, when she left uh, the U.S. after the Chicago police riots in 68 and went mm-hmm. into voluntary exile with her kids and brought her and Frederick Pohl's book collection with her, donated them to the Toronto Public Library, and started what's now the largest science fiction reference collection in the world. Wow. And she was writer in residence. And they brought us down there, and she was like, hey, kids, if you write a manuscript, you can bring it here. She was this famous writer, critic, editor, towering giant in the field. And I already knew her because she used to introduce Doctor Who on public television. <laughs> and my dad knew her because he's a, he, you know, he's a, a lefty and he knew her through political organizing. So they knew each other already. So we'd go, oh, that's my friend Judy. We'd watch her. My mom was doing her master's. We'd watch uh, Judy introduce Doctor Who. And so Judy went on to like, she started the writer's workshop at my groovy alternative high school. Uh, she would bring writers together who she thought were writing around the same level. And she would let us use the back room at the library to have regular writing workshops. Some That's of those workshops so are cool. still going. Uh, she started a, like a movable feast called Hydra, where every eight weeks you'd have a party at a different writer's house and everyone would kick in a couple of bucks for beer. Wow. Um, it was so amazing. And in that Milieu, we also had this incredible Dungeons and Dragons scene where there was this um, hobby store called Mr. Gameway's Ark. It was four stories tall. And the attic was a full-scale replica of the bridge of the Enterprise, the original Enterprise. (laughs) And that's where they played D&D on Saturdays. That's awesome. That's incredible! And then there are arch enemies down the street where the four horsemen. And so you had dueling D&D stores within two blocks of each other. Uh, I want to, so like, I want to read a novel about that. Like, it was, it was amazing. It was so nerdy. And then we had a Dungeons and Dragons, uh, club at the Harborfront Center That's that I used to go to every Saturday and, they did D&D summer camp, and at that summer camp, like, that's where I met my first real writer, Ed Llewellyn, who's still a friend of mine now, who was a D&D writer and science fiction writer and fantasy mm-hmm. writer, who went on to work at the science fiction bookstore that I also worked at there, which yeah. was the oldest science fiction bookstore in the world, which was founded because Judy Merrill was at a party with the the guy who founded it and said, 
you should open a science fiction bookstore. And he went and opened it. Wow. And that's how Toronto got what's now the oldest science fiction bookstore in the world. It's on its third owner. That's uh, so rad. It's, it, it was such a good, like it was as close to having a formal apprenticeship for being a nerd and a science I fiction writer. I was going to say, you had no yeah. choice but to be a professional It was nerd. amazing. Like that's, yeah. <laughs> that's It was incredible. really cool. Can you talk at all about, I was just going to, this is not a planned question, but uh, how how do you feel like experience with D&D relates to your writing? Is there a connection there for you at all? I A little bit, but you know, D&D stories, D&D, when you write out a campaign, it tends to have the, um, it's like a buildings roman or a picaresque, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I've done some of those, like people have called Walkaway a, a picaresque, but uh you know, I'm a pulp writer and pulp writers like plot and right. like the structure of a pulp story is um, a person with a problem, tries intelligently to solve it, fails through no fault of their own. Things get worse. So they have a new problem and they try intelligently to solve it, fail through no fault of their own. Things get worse. And the, the stakes keep rising and rising and rising until you reach a climax. And then you have either like a tragedy or comedy, right? A happy ending or a sad ending and then a little mm-hmm. denouement. And that is your like basic verse, verse, chorus, one, four, five progression, right. pulp story. And it's, I mean, like... A well-structured D&D campaign has elements of that where, you know, the level one monsters are all trash mobs. And by the time you get to the final boss, it's like a dragon that you have to do something amazing to defeat. And you picked up some plot coupons on the way and stuff. But it's not – like the best D&D campaigns go off the rails, I was going to say you can't control it because the murder hobos Mm -hmm. do whatever they want to do and then – Yeah. Yeah, the players are Especially if you're playing with Paul and I, so. Yeah. (laughs) They're like, oh, I'm going to – oh, there's a door there and we could pick the lock? What if we ignore that door and go right. in the other direction yeah. where nothing interesting What if we set that other thing on fire for no reason? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't actually, know. I've never we'll... done that or anything. <laughs> well, Will, Will had an essay about this one time about the difference between RPGs and online RPGs, which is that in an RPG, the DM will always let you roll a D20 to see mm-hmm. if you score a natural 20, no matter how weird your plan is. Yeah. And so, you know, 19 times out of 20, your stupid idea falls on its face. But one time out of 20, you get a fucking Hail Mary, right? You get yep. this, just this yep. epic, you know, <laughs> the, the firing your one arrow and hitting Smog's yep. missing scale thing. Right. And the fact that it only happens one time out of 20 is what makes it cool if it happens right. every time. And, and what keeps you trying. Yeah, right. yeah. You're like, I'm going to make a snorkel for the robot dog. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Gonna... Yeah, exactly. But but like online RPGs generally don't have that. The one exception that came close was um, Left for Dead had this mm-hmm. uh, um, it put its thumb on the scales that when your health was low, your ammo was low, and the mob had just found you, it radically increased the chance that you would find epic weapons. And so they're still rare, right? Because yeah. they were very rare to begin with. But they went from like a 1% to like an 8%. And so if you Abundant. played it long enough, it would just feel like really yeah. – like these these incredible last-minute reversals were happening that were so exciting. And mm. like I think of it as like the honest version of the Warcraft model where it's like you go on a quest and it gives you a side quest that um, – you know, like as your quest ends, you've still got another quest to go on, which is how you like look up from Warcraft and, you know, 17 hours have gone right. by because it's just kind of manipulated you into not having a an, an, uh, natural stopping point. Mm-hmm. Whereas with, with Left 4 Dead, it was just like just just these moments of epic 
achievement, you know, like the combination of luck and skill coming together in these, these epic moments. Uh, and it made the game so satisfying and satisfying to watch. I'm not much of a gamer. My wife, uh, used to be a professional Quake player. Uh, and she ran the games practice for the BBC and, uh, which is how I met her in Finland. And so she plays everything, and I have been various kinds of widower, you know, Warcraft widower yep. and a Star Wars Galaxy widower. I've been that. Widower, <laughs> widower and, yeah. What is she but playing I now? Can, yeah. Um, now it's just Hearthstone, and she's like in the top yeah. 2% worldwide of Hearthstone That's incredible. Players. And at the end of the month, she's like, I've got to get my stats up. Stop talking to me. <laughs> you know, the leaderboard comes out tomorrow. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's so funny. What are, uh, we talked a lot about like hacking and stuff. What are some of your favorite or most ridiculous hacker cliches from pop culture stuff? Um, I would say that anything related to cryptography, um, having like a timed failure, like, uh, what's well, going to take us two hours to crack the code. So the thing about, about ciphers is that adding one bit to the key doubles the number of possible keys. So it doubles the time it takes to brute force mm-hmm. it. And so if you have a cipher, that takes two hours to brute force. You can make it take 200 million hours to brute force with a, just a tiny little bit extra time on the encryption side. Like, like an, an unnoticeable amount of time. Like modern ciphers are so, uh, the key lengths are so long just by default. Right. That if all the hydrogen atoms in the universe were computers and they did nothing until the end of the universe but try and guess the key, you run out of universe a lot longer before than when you run out of keys. And so, you know, that cliche just drives me bananas because that's not how you break ciphers, right? The way you break ciphers is you find a mistake in the program, you find someone who uh, uh, knows the key and you tie them to a chair and you hit them with a rubber hose. That's called rubber hose cryptanalysis. Okay. Um, no, writing that one you, down. <laughs> you you um, infect the device and capture the key with a key logger. Mm-hmm. Uh, you put a little camera in. In fact, uh, Bruce Schneier, who wrote one of the Afterwards Little Brother, just posted a link today to an article where people are doing statistical inference of what words are being uh, typed by looking at people on Zoom conferences and watching their shoulder movements while they type. Oh my God. And you can wow. do strong statistical inference about which keys they're hitting for the... So you do oh that. my God, I gotta look that up. Like, isn't that 10 million That's times crazy. more interesting I than, like, we've got the, four uh, hours... Right. I loved the afterword to Little Brother. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, so bring it back to Attack Surface. Uh, yeah. One of the things that you, you talk about or that you put in your character's mouths, it seems like a lot in that book, is how... <laughs> Sounds personal. All it all it takes... Like, you can't be perfect. If you're playing defense, yeah. you have to be perfect all of the time. All it takes is one mistake, yeah. and not even your mistake, but the people you're communicating with, one mistake on their part, and they're, you're you're cracked, right? And you also made this analogy that I thought was very interesting to technology being at the point of, I'm probably mangling this and you can definitely correct me on on the other end, but comparing it to uh, climate change, like we are, are, like we're past the point of no return about like uh, with the, the technology that's out there, we're not putting this genie back in the bottle and you can't be perfect. So we have to use technology in other ways. We're not going to, play defense all the time and figure out a way to make ourselves unbreakable or unhackable. And yeah. I like that definitely shifted sort of the way I think about, yeah, you know, my, even my own personal, probably really terrible methods that I use to keep myself safe. Nobody cares about my information really, but right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, they don't, but there lo- a lot of attacks are attacks of opportunity. Right. They, exactly. Yeah. They're like the, you know, cyber criminals are like the Lakota. They use the whole victim. Yeah. 
they, you know, like first they, first they, you know, hijack your computer and use it to stage attacks on other computers, or they mm -hmm. take your, you know, credentials and they stuff them into accounts to see if they can log into an old email account and right. then they can use that to do bad things or whatever. So it's not, it's, it doesn't mean that you don't end up in a world of hurt, even if there's right. nothing you have to offer because all the trails dead end with you. So yeah, I'm I a think target of opportunity. I'm not a targeted individual. Yeah, that's in right. Sense, yeah, but, you're not, yeah. you're not. You don't have to worry about a, a an advanced persistent threat. Just exactly just right. untargeted. Yeah. So I I I think that's uh that's a good characterization. There is a strain of cyber utopianism, and again, let me stop and be discursive for a moment. I think cyber utopianism gets a bad rap. I think that the the main line of cyber utopianism is not this will all be so great. It's this will all be so great if we don't screw it up. It is the, <laughs> it is the, like the excitement balanced with the terror, right? Think of what we can do. Think of what happens if we don't act. And that's the, that's the, 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 the combination of the, of the forces that motivate people. But there's a strain of cyber utopianism that says, look, with enough cryptography, we can build a kind of demimond. And it will sit next to the unjust and fallen world full of the uh, illegitimate exercise of authority. And we will be insulated from that illegitimate exercise of authority because they will never pier pierce our ciphers. But there is no key length or cipher that defeats rubber hose crypt analysis, right? The thing mm -hmm. that defeats rubber hose crypt analysis is accountable democracy. And so if you want to have a uh, society in which your ciphers work, you need to have a society in which authority is legitimate. And it's um, it's an equilibrium. And it's not like when you set out to change the world immediately, all of your security is breached. It's just a, a, a matter of time until your security is breached. And often when it's breached, it can be rewound because... Uh, the, the, you, you have these vast capture mechanisms that are capturing all of your communications going back many, many, many years. And then one clue comes in that allows, uh, that f for, uh, acts as a key that allows all of that to be rendered sensible to the authorities, legible to the authorities. And they can go back in time and see all the stuff that you did before you got popped as well. And so the, the risk is very high, right? Um, and so, what I think the correct way to view cybersecurity and its relationship to human rights is, is that uh, uh, the digital privacy tools and digital security tools can create a kind of temporary autonomous zone, right? They can they can create a, a, a buffer, not a shield, between you and the unjust exercise of authority. And the thing to do with the time that you, that, that buys you is to organize political movements that demand accountability and just, and the just exercise of authority, right? That, that demand good governance. That they, the two worlds sat next to each other, never worked, never will work. But the, the, having a, a, um, a defensive element that you can use within a justice struggle that seeks to reform our politics, that is a very powerful addition to the, the suite of tools. And of course, the other thing technology does is helps people who have heterodox views find each other at a lower risk of reprisal, which is mm -hmm. why suddenly there are a whole bunch of people who can talk about being trans because they couldn't even announce the right. feeling that they had without right. suffering retaliation. Now they can whisper it into a search engine, find other people who know the words for what they're feeling, discover it, form their identity, mm -hmm. make communities, and so on. The downside of this 
because it lets people who can't speak their feelings aloud find each other when those feelings are, I think we should all dress up like Confederate soldiers and go to Charlottesville and carry tiki torches and chant, Jews will not replace us, right? And right. I, and I, you don't get one without the we other. We just had that right. same conversation at dinner the other night about yeah. the validity of those relationships that you can make online and those connections you can make with people who you might not ever know anyone in person that feels that same way, but then what if you're a fucking Nazi? So. Yep. <laughs> it's, and I think that, you know, like, I think that fighting Nazism by making it harder for Nazis to talk to each other is like fighting fires by putting them out. And the way you fight Nazism is by discrediting the underpinnings of Nazism, the precarity and the, the corruption that make people vulnerable to explanations, conspiratorial explanations for their circumstances. Cause like, if you look at the arguments Nazis made, when the Blues Brothers were running them off a bridge. There's my other nostalgia. I want to you there. <laughs> there you I go. Quote the whole movie. Uh, <laughs> we had it on VHS. I know the whole thing. Anyway, you know, the arguments that that Nazi barks from the bridge in Illinois are not better than the arguments on on Stormfront today. So it's not that they've become more persuasive. It's that the argument has taken on more explanatory power when you say to people look there is rampant corruption um you are being conspired against um the uh the system is rigged all of those ring true because they are true the mm -hmm. part that's not true is the simplistic part that goes and it's like the zionist occupied government and the rothschilds and you know the clinton pedophile ring and whatever which is all bullshit but like the reason the bullshit sounds true is because of the true part right in the same way that anti-vax sounds true because the Sacklers got away with killing hundreds of thousands of people with fucking opioids and right. made more money than the Rockefellers. Right. And nobody yeah. stopped them. And they knew what they were doing. And the FDA knew what they were doing. And they were just rich. And so nobody stopped them. Right. And so, like, when someone says, why would you trust the medical establishment when they say vaccines are safe? Didn't you see what happened to the Sacklers? Like, your answer can't be oh, no, the medical establishment wouldn't lie to me. Because they did, right? The answer has right. to be, this right. time they're not lying to me. And how do you know, right? Like, are you a microbiologist? Like, right. I just know because I feel, like, honestly, I know because I feel it in my bones. And you, you know what? That's a shitty basis to proceed with on something as important as vaccination. Right. So you characterize the tax surface as an adult novel. And yeah. Like, I just, I want to say, you know, I, I feel like this message in particular is, and I'm at a middle school. Uh, Beth right. is over at our high school. And like for a high school kid, I would want to put this. Is, they're a fan of Little Brother series, and, yeah. and I can write. Like I would want to put this book in their hand because that message yeah. is so important. I feel like we are seeing so much in the educational world. We see so much push towards STEM or STEAM in yeah. in, in a vacuum of humanities, a vacuum yeah. of ethics. Right. And like my undergrad degree is philosophy. I am not. I am a tech person by amateur-ish interest and always wanted to be that hacker guy that never got there. But when I look at what kids right now are being pushed into as the STEM and you oh, go work for these great, cool tech companies where you can skateboard down the hallways and they pay for your dry cleaning on site. And that's what we're luring kids in with as the ideal situation for their job with no no sense of the ethics behind it. And I feel like uh -huh. attack yeah. surface hits on that in such a way that's so important to say, look, right. exactly. Oh, right. sure. But 
I, I mean, I think that young adult and adult are genres as much as they are right. um, age recommendations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had uh, a student today who, speaking of your kid who liked Little Brother and your kid who's getting courted by those companies, I've got a kid who's a senior who's really brilliant who came up to me today. Now, we don't publicize our podcast to our students because we say fuck a lot and I talk about making mm. out with Thundercats. Um, but, but, um, I had this really brilliant senior come up to me today and she said, oh, oh, Miss D, Miss D, um, did you know, and she saw Little Brother was on my desk and she said, Cory Doctorow has his new book. It's out and I just got it and I'm so excited. And I said, I went, oh, cool. Yeah, it's on my list. Like, cause I didn't want to say, oh, later today I am gonna, you know what I mean? Tell her thank you for her enthusiasm. Yeah, I, I, she was so excited and she's definitely one of those kids that's going to go have some brilliant career and awesome. you know but that was just really funny to me because probably paul you book talked little brother to her in middle school i bet i know the student you're talking i know the student you're talking yes i do so um what, and what city are you folks in buffalo uh a suburb oh, you're of buffalo, buffalo. Yeah. oh yeah okay yeah sort of an affluent suburb um right. so yeah so we are um we're there and, and yeah she it was just so funny because i was like oh is that so like you know right <laughs> so but yeah there's definitely and it and it was heartening to me because she will have that that ethical Aww, basis and that thought so that so that is happening it is having an impact yeah you know and certainly like a lot of people have told me that that their career in tech or in activism or cyber law or whatever, that it started with reading the book, right? Yeah, it started absolutely. With, it started mm-hmm. with those twin, those twin poles, the, the terror and the, the, the glory of technology. Right. Hmm. And I had a question that, I mean, it just, we are interested in, in the DRM stuff and your fight against that. And my end of that question, cause I couldn't figure out how to end it was like, Tell our listeners why they should give a shit about that stuff. And I feel like, you know, Paul and I, you know, we, we, we try to explain to kids like why band books week is important. And we try to explain like, you know, when, um, you know, net neutrality was, you know, a, a thing, like why is that important? Like I think there's kids who use this stuff and they don't even know why this is a thing they should be worried about. Sure. So I think your books help to let them know, you know, there's a whole other side of it that you should be thinking about and knowing about. When they read it, they're like, shit, yeah, damn the man. Don't trust anyone over 25, you know? Like, so. so, I I mean, I think that if you're like a library person and listening to this, your experience of DRM is probably about the hassle of it, the way that it's used to yeah. lock mm-hmm. libraries into abusive relationships where yep. you have these books that self-destruct and and – uh, and, and even, you know, worse relations than that, you know, P- Macmillan rightfully got a lot of stick for, for their library policies, but Amazon publishes more than half the genre fiction, right. and more than half of the best selling audiobooks. They don't sell them to libraries at any price. Right. Right. Like, you know, Macmillan, whatever, right. Price right. gouging, right. not great. Sure. Right. <laughs> but like libraries are older than paper. <laughs> <laughs> and and the idea that this thing that is this like ancient civilizational compact that is the library can be overridden by some like callow Georgetown grad on the legal floor at Amazon who writes a garbage novella of legalese and says, you know, uh, with with the stroke of my pen, I erase the bargain of books, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, like that is just grotesquely offensive. But that's really just like the, the kind of tip of the iceberg. The thing to understand about about DRM is that it is a, a the intersection of a law and a technology. 
So the law is Section 12.1 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Uh, it's Bill C-32 in Canada, Article 6 of the European Copyright Directive, Canada or Australia-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, <laughs> yeah. uh, the New Mexican Copyright Law of July the 1st, and so on. Like, it's all over the world, this, this ridiculous law. And what the law says is that breaking DRM is a crime, even if you don't violate copyright. And so this is this, like, incredible temptation. It started as, like, a grift for, like, companies that wanted to sell DVDs at different prices in different countries. Because if you think about it, you, if you remember regionalized, speaking of nostalgia, regionalized yeah, DVDs. regionalized right? DVDs. <laughs> so, they're, they're, like, going to Mexico and buying a DVD, an, an, an official licensed DVD, and bringing it home to Buffalo and putting in your DVD player yeah. is not a copyright violation. It is the, like, literal opposite of a copyright violation. The rights holder told you how much they wanted for their work. You right. gave them that you much money, to then them, you went home you to enjoy it. the work. So it was never about protecting copyright. It was always about protecting business models. Because right, it was always about making money. <laughs> yeah, the world is more convenient if your commercial preferences are also laws. Right. And so uh, <laughs> what this does is it allows any firm that designs a product so that using it in ways that are disfavored by its shareholders requires bypassing DRM. Right. Then anything that you do that displeases the shareholder is a felony. It's a in the U.S. It's yeah. a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a five hundred thousand dollars fine. Shit. So, so like, well, which everybody Medtronic. knows because it's played before every. Yeah, every, every no, movie. that's DMCA five twelve. Oh, okay, this is okay. DMCA five twelve. <laughs> Sorry. Which you also had a whole thing about taking a picture of the, right, right. Of yeah, the that's video. Right. That, that copyright word. <laughs> but but this has been used like you might have heard about the right to repair fight. Yeah. So the, what what we see is that companies will add just enough DRM. So that after you fix a thing, you then have to type an unlock code in it to say repair complete. And that is the DRM and bypassing the DRM is a felony. So that even though you have a device that is like functional and it's been fixed and the independent technician did it and it worked, you can't actually make that repair work without committing a felony. So we see this with iPhones. Yeah, with I was John just going to say iPhones, yeah. But here's the most egregious example. There's a company called Medtronic, which I think may even be from upstate New York originally. That sounds uh, familiar. They're the largest medical tech company in the world, yeah. in part because they did uh, what was called an inversion, where they uh, essentially let themselves be bought out by a company in a low-tax jurisdiction. So they may, they pay no taxes. So they're these giant tax dodgers. They make the world's workhorse uh, ventilators. So if you're ever on a ventilator, chances are it's a Medtronic ventilator. They started as a repair shop, but they block repairs. So the Medtronic's origin was that they were a repair shop that turned into this med tech giant. They don't let anyone repair their shit. And so their ventilators have got two parts. There's the ventilator part and there's the screen part. And it's one part of the other that breaks down. And so refurbishers used to buy screens from dead ventilators or buy ventilators with dead screens and plug them in. But now you need to type in an unlock code to do it. And that's a felony unless Medtronic greenlights it. Wow. So then comes the pandemic. And right. you have Medtechs. That's why I are, heard of them. Yeah, they're not refurbing. Like, they're not, like, some of them are. But they're not just, like, buying on eBay busted ventilators and fixing them. They're Medtechs who work at hospitals who have a working ventilator with a busted screen, a working screen on a busted ventilator, and need to put them together because someone is going to die if they don't. Mm -hmm. And they can't. Right. And Medtronic's normal answer, which was wait 72 hours, a technician will come out and type the unlock code into the into the keyboard. Not only is that like 
not sufficient and when it's a matter of life or death to begin with. But when none of the planes are flying and it's not safe right. to go anywhere, You're just that is people. like super bad news. And it's true with the tractors too, right? This is what John Deere does with his tractors. When there's a hailstorm coming, you got to get the crops and you can't wait for the dude to show up and type your unlock code. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is this is like the next part is that it takes what we think of as the traditional property arrangement, leaving aside the book arrangement, the property arrangement, where you buy a thing that belongs to you, you can use it in ways that you that you prefer, even if it's bad for the shareholders, the manufacturer, even if it's unwise, right? Even if you go to the wrong repair technician or put the cheap ink in your printer that doesn't look yeah. good, it's it's your call because it your belongs problem. to you. Yeah. In the same way that you can wear socks with shoes that don't go with them, right? The shoe <laughs> manufacturer doesn't get to say you're going to look like an ass if you wear those socks with those shoes, so you can't can't right so to have property the manufacturer's interest in that property needs to be exhausted at the time of sale it's called the doctrine of exhaustion but dmca 1201 trumps the doctrine of exhaustion Mm -hmm. if there's some drm in there so that's that's the that's the law part then there's the technology part and the technology part by its nature drm is not technically impervious right you know people like who who get a drm device most of us don't know what to do to remove the drm but you know the world is full of bored grad students who like with nothing better to do this weekend you know than use the electron tunneling microscope to like you know decap the chip and like read it you know like read the secrets in it and shit right like it all and once and it's break once break anywhere once the once the secret is out it's out right so you what you want to stop if you're if you're building drm is you want to stop J random person from like locating the icon on their desktop that says DRM and dragging it into the trash. And so by its nature, DRM obfuscates what it does from the user. Its processes aren't visible in the process monitor. If you ever like say, what programs are running on my computer? It tries to hide itself. The files are hidden in the file system. And all the methods that it uses to hide itself from you can be co-opted by malicious software. Hmm. So Device vendors right. and DRM vendors deliberately put a moat in the eye of your device mm-hmm. because the device treats you as its adversary. And so now you have devices that have a defect that if it's discovered and used can be exploited in a way that intentionally you can't detect and, and overturn. And then this is the final part. The part of the law that says that weakening DRM is a felony combined with the deliberate introduction of security vulnerabilities means that when security researchers detect these vulnerabilities and want to warn you that your pacemaker, Medtronic's pacemakers, can be uh, deactivated from 30 paces and kill you, right? That the insulin pumps made by Medtronic uh, can be uh, uh, overtaken remotely and caused to dump all of the insulin in them. That the glucose monitors that Abbott Labs make have bugs in them that allow them to be remotely overridden. That the uh, the G- the GMC Jeep could be remotely hijacked and driven off the road using the Sprint SIM that they put in the engine so that you could have an on-demand Wi-Fi hotspot. Jesus right? Christ. All yeah. of that stuff, revealing those defects in these devices that are proliferating everywhere because everyone wants felony contempt of business model, right? Everyone wants to be mm-hmm. able to, to felonize conduct they disfavor. Right, right. In devices that are designed to hide their defects from users, those defects cannot be reported on by security researchers. And so the way that we discover them is they get widely exploited by bad guys who don't have to worry about going to jail for revealing defects in public because they just want to steal your shit, kill you, attack your devices with ransomware, whatever. And 
that is like a perfect storm of awful, right? right. The, it, the, the expanding constellation of devices that treat their owners as attackers that have deliberate security defects that are an, atta- an attack surface that cannot be explored by security researchers. Oh, I and see so what you And so you are there. in the dark no. until, yeah, very good. Until, the, <laughs> until, until, until it's too late. That is like, it's such a recipe for tech, like in my professional capacity as a dystopian science fiction writer. Right. Such, a recipe for a dystopian science fictional future. Right. And like that all sounds like shit I've read in a book. Like yeah. that all, and it's real stuff. Like it's bonkers. You know, in a tax surface, there's this MacGuffin that is like the self-driving cars get taken over and turned into murder mobiles. Right. Right. That, that comes from, you've probably encountered someone who is being half smart about self-driving cars who said, have you ever heard of the trolley problem? The trolley problem yeah. is this ethical problem. <laughs> and, you know, you've got to decide, are you going to, like, kill the driver or are you going to let the, the car plow into the school bus with six children on it? Who dies? The driver, the kids, the driver, the kids. Well, here's the thing is, like, before you even open the curtain on your little Gedanken experiment, you have already decided that this device will be designed to periodically kill its driver <laughs> and that the driver will not have any ability to right. uh, change the programming. Right. So what that means is that if you can find the module, the, the kill the driver module, and co-opt yeah. it because you're a corrupt state, because you're someone who works for the manufacturer who's not particularly honest, and after Dieselgate, like, who thinks that auto manufacturers are honest? Um, or, or, you know, if you're, if you're someone who discovers a security defect, you can co-opt that mechanism to murder people in the cars by design, mm-hmm. right? Like, Holy shit, is that a terrible that's idea? Terrible. And so, you know, that's, it's just a way of like kind of, you know, in the, the book, it's meant to be like not a thought experiment about self-driving cars because they're never going to happen. That's just bullshit. But, <laughs> but a thought experiment about the danger of designing devices that treat their owners as attackers. Right. That's hmm. incredible. We are, uh-huh. we are, we, we, I want to be cognizant of Corey's time. Yeah. So I got to go, yeah, I got to yeah, go yeah. put some tofu on the grill. Listen, um, my partner is a huge Edward Snowden fanboy and he needed me to say to you, like, so what, like, what does he smell like? Like, he just is obsessed and he <laughs> needed, I he, only get to see him through video. I know, that's I don't what, know I what I thought. He's, I thought. He smells <laughs> like my phone. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, yeah, that's what I, suspicion confirmed. But he is incredibly sweet and nice and thoughtful and like, People who whistleblow often are like not motivated by entirely pure motives. Right? I read like, your whole piece whistle- on it. Yeah. yeah. I'll post some and, of that stuff, guys. I'll post the, the piece on DRM and the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of whistleblowers are thorny, spiky people. Like think about what it takes to like right. blow the whistle on your employer. You've got to be a bit of a, a, a spiky person. And yeah. he's not from what I can tell. He's like deeply principled, but he's thoughtful and he's kind and he's empathic. And I think it's that empathy that motivated him to be a whistleblower. And, you know, a lot of the times when you meet whistleblowers, they have a strong sense of um, moral outrage. But, uh, like, the individual empathy, it's um, – I'm not going to say they lack it, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated thing, right? Because you have to lack empathy to, like – fuck up the shit of the people you work with every sure, day, right? Sure. Like the, it takes some, it takes some, uh, you know, you, you have to have a, you have to be able to harden your heart sure, to ruin the people that. you work with, you know, yeah. or, or discredit them or put, put your former employer out of business and so on. And this is one of the things that works powerfully against whistleblowing. It's not like right. you don't think it's wrong that your company's dumping effluent in the river. It's that you don't want to, um, you don't want everyone to not have a job anymore. You know, yeah. You know that Bob's kid has got cancer yeah. and you don't want him to lose his health care, right? And the fact that you're giving someone downstream's kids cancer, uh, is bad, but like, you don't know them and you know yeah. Bob. So he's got, he's got a kind of empathy that is, um, 
very global. Like it's, you know, he's, he's very kind about the people he knows personally. And we know some people in common who have struggled and who have been, uh, gotten themselves in trouble by doing things that weren't great. And he's empathic about them in a way that's very admirable, but like his empathy for technology users as a class, right. Of, uh, and generations that haven't come, that is, a. a it's it's palpable when you talk to him. He's a really spectacular person. I I you know, Biden's never gonna let him back. I, um, that's I what we someday. were just talking about. Yeah, someday. Yeah. yeah. Well thank you so much, Corey. This has been a delight. Yes, I hope you had awesome. fun with us. Yeah, thank you. It was great. So nerds, go read Attack Surface, read all of Corey's stuff. I wanna say things. just hold on, I'm interrupting you because I wanna say thank you to Corey because I, as a librarian, I read a lot or I read a lot and then COVID broke my brain and I stopped reading for a very long time and yep. reading the Little Brother series up to Attack Surface is bringing me back to what my love of reading and it's, it's it was a delightful read and terrifying and wonderful. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Enjoy your tofu and um, all of that. And and everyone out there, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks to Joe Costanza for writing our theme song. We'll see you guys again soon. And until next time. Keep the nerd alive. That's right. I always liked with the elementary kids um, having them uh, listen to the author say their name. Yes, the name. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's some really tough ones out there. You know, there, there's an infamous one that I always want to, whenever anyone asks me for my name for that purpose, I always want to do, which is, um, you know, when, when Linux was created, no one knew how to pronounce the name of the guy who made it. Mm-hmm. And when the first sound drivers for Linux came out, because it was all being made one little bit at a time by, you know, hobbyists and hackers and stuff. The clip that came with it so that you could tell if your sound card worked was him saying, my name is Linus Torvalds and I pronounce Linux, Linux. <laughs> and whenever anyone asks my name, I want to say, my oh, name is Linus Torvalds and I pronounce <laughs> Linux, Linux. I, I heard that so many times getting computers working. And now we all say Linux, even and though And now we all say Linux. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Cute. Yeah, unless you're involved with the free software movement, in which case you call it GNU slash Linux, unless you're Richard Stallman, in which case you call it GNU slash Linux, which most people call Linux, but which should probably be called GNU slash Linux, in recognition of the achievement that the GNU movement has made right. to the Linux kernel. That That's his actual name for it. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a little yeah. bit much. That's a lot to put mm-hmm. on a sticker on a laptop, which I yeah. feel like. Yeah. With, with the word inside in a mm-hmm. little circle. Yeah. <laughs> that's a challenge. <laughs>